0: lies within the trails we ride you're listening to the journey on podcast with warwick schiller warwick is a horseman trainer international clinician and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills knowledge and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com.
1: G'day, everyone. Welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I am your host, Warwick Schiller, and my very, very special guest this week on the podcast is none other than Amanda Wilson from New Zealand. So, Amanda is one of the three Wilson sisters. Uh, the older sister Vicky is a, a very, very, very accomplished show jumper, and also has uh, won Road to the Horse here in the US twice. Uh, the middle sister Kelly has been a guest on the podcast uh, last year, I think she may have been, and uh, you know Kelly shared some amazing stories about not only her her trip with the the Gobi cold camel expedition that my son Tyler and I did. She went on the first one and almost died, but she shared um some of the stories about observations with photographing wild horses around the world and some of the the um stories she told us about things she'd seen with herds of wild horses just absolutely blew my mind and i've had a lot of feedback about how many other minds were blown by some of the stories that kelly told uh you know the the wilson sisters i met them about 7 years ago at a horse expo in New Zealand and you know they were accomplished horse women at the time and kind of known in the horse circles but since then they've become f- really quite famous especially in New Zealand they featured on a TV show called Keeping Up with the Kaimanawas and um the thing about these girls is they they just haven't changed since I met them when they were not famous at all and hadn't won a lot of big stuff and uh, yeah, I just love the Wilson sisters. And Amanda, who I have on the podcast today, has been travelling around uh, New Zealand doing something called Trauma Talks. And so I was really interested in having Amanda on here to talk about exactly what these Trauma Talks are and how she got to them. And wow, what you know, what came out of her mouth so closely mirrors. The journey i've been going through both with my own personal trauma and using my understanding of that to help unravel trauma in horses it's just uncanny she's on the other side of the world and basically came up with the same thing so yeah this conversation with amanda was just absolutely amazing she's a amazing human being doing wonderful things in the world and such such a cool lady i just i love the heck out of amanda so i hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as i did Amanda Wilson welcome to the journey on podcast
2: thank you so much for having
1: me I'm very honored oh I'm very excited to have you on here you are the funniest of the three Wilson (laughs) sisters Uh,
2: sometimes
1: (laughs) sometimes. no I think you're the funniest all the time so it's been a bit of a struggle to get you on here because you've been pretty busy lately doing these things called trauma talks and usually you know there's a bit of on the podcast here, yeah, there's a bit of chitter-chatter before we get going, but I'm just going to jump right into that. What, what is it, where have you been going, and what have you been talking about?
2: Well, for the last seven years, I've been studying human trauma because I really uh, needed to understand human behavior a lot more. I had a lot of things that I was dealing with that I hadn't dealt with, um, and a lot of people in my life who had been through traumatic events that they hadn't been able to find a way to move on from. So uh, seven years ago, I started writing a book with the goal of being uh, to discover the pattern of healing. And a lot of the books uh, about survivors of trauma, they often say that, you know, there is no getting over healing, there's learning how to live with it and learning how to tolerate it. And I didn't think that that was fair if you'd been through sexual abuse or you'd lost a child or been through something horrific, that you then Mm. had to live with it for the rest of your life. And so through my huge amount of study um, uh, and writing, about three or four years ago, I learned how to uh, release fears, which is essentially finding healing from past traumatic experiences. And then a few months ago, I had a lady that I'd worked with for the last year. She begged me to do a talk um, up north. And so I advertised and I said, I'm doing a trauma talk. I'm just talking about my own story and about my findings through learning about trauma. And I had 50 people book in and it was so successful that I ended up, I think, booking 16 talks around the country, North Island and South Island. And I've just come back from a one-month road trip. Um, And, yeah, it's been incredible. The feedback's been amazing, actually.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I... I've had, did a I've done a fair bit of a deep dive into my trauma, still working on that. But what's really, you know, the, you said the feedback's been amazing. What you tend to find, you'd know this by now, but what you tend to find is you've got this stuff that's happened to you in the past and you keep it locked up inside you and you don't tell anybody because you're ashamed of it because people would judge you. And when you do share it, you don't get judgment. You get, yeah, me too.
2: Yeah, yep yep and that's the thing when I like learned about this so the reason I started my journey was because seven years ago you know I'd, I'd done the personal development work uh, for over a decade now and it wasn't until seven years ago a family friend came forward and they shared their story with us and it was so horrific and so traumatizing and I thought trauma was so rare I didn't I had a really uh, messed up understanding of what it was i thought it was something significant like a natural disaster or um, the loss of a child and then this person shared their story with us and then i and i started to learn more about trauma because i didn't want what happened to them to be swept under the rug i wanted something good to come from it and then as i started to learn more about it i and the people around me started to open up about their own experiences i realized that trauma is everywhere we have all experienced it, and even if we haven't experienced something significant ourselves, it is very likely that we will know someone who has, and, and it is possible to pick up secondhand hand trauma. So um, when I start to share my story, people come forward and share their stories, and it's, it's actually such a beautiful thing because, yeah, we, we all hide it away and we pretend we've got everything together, but I'm getting up there in my trauma talks and I'm unravelling everything. I'm just basically saying, this is my story and i think it opens up dialogue that uh, for some people who you know who have had similar experiences or maybe completely different experiences
1: yeah I've, I've i've had that you know like i said i've had that same thing where you you um you know what what actually led me down this whole path i didn't even know i had anything going on oh well i suppose i did but a few years ago at a horse expo in i think it was madison wisconsin i had to do a a like some of the horse expos over here you do demos but then they also might have you on the same day do like a stand-up talk you know and i have this one i have tucked away that to use for those occasions that i call uh everything I learnt in life i learned from horses and it changes every time because you learned something another life lesson from horses or something different but this one that i did so i'd been doing it for probably four years by that point in time this one i did I spat out some stuff in front of a couple of hundred strangers that I hadn't actually admitted to possibly anybody, possibly even to myself. Right. And I don't know what it was that the catalyst to have me just talk about this stuff in front of all these people. And when I was finished, I walked back to the booth and I walked past Barbara Schulte's booth. So Barbara Schulte is a, she's in the Calgo hall of fame. She's won the cutting for charity, but she's a big time writing mental coach. And I went past her booth and she said, how'd the talk go? I said, oh, Bob, I'm I'm exhausted. Like, I feel like I've been run over by a truck. And she said, why? And I said, well, I kind of spat out some stuff in front of all those people that I probably haven't spat out before. And she says, well, Brene Brown says, shame is the scourge of society and vulnerability is the antidote to shame, which that sentence didn't mean anything to me at the time. But I'm like, who? And she's Brene Brown. So I ended up coming home looking up Brene Brown and that led me down a bit of a, rabbit hole probably a parallel rabbit hole to the one you've been down
2: yeah well I think with a lot of the trauma avenues there's so many different ways to find healing but the actual overall pattern is very similar whether you go through energy work or uh, meditation or self-help um, and so yeah it, that's actually quite incredible for you as like you know there's that moment we kind of have in our lives where you've you have like an awakening and for me, it wasn't until that experience seven years ago. And for you, that must have been, you know, that, that awakening, the, the stepping down the rabbit hole.
1: That actually wasn't the awakening. Oh, was it wasn't? No, that was one weekend. The oh. next the next week, that was the crack in the armor. But the next weekend, uh, I was doing a clinic still back there. I was still in Wisconsin or wherever it was. And I did a clinic on the Saturday. And then we went to, I went to someone's house for, we went, I went to dinner and then went to someone's house. And there's a group of us sitting around talking and one of them was a psychiatrist, and she asked me these kind of pointed questions. Yeah. That, and then, that kind of made me uh 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 and she just sat there and looked at me with these green eyes of hers and just stared into my soul. Anyway, then they had to go home, and I didn't answer the questions. Uh, but then, the people I was sitting around with, were sitting around having a few drinks, and one of them asked a question, and it kind of cracked me a little bit, and the other one asked another question that cracked me a little bit, and the other one asked another question, and pretty soon the whole room, Tilted like 45 degrees like I had vertigo and all of a sudden I just burst out Screaming and bawling. I'm like who the hell are you people and what planet are you from like the whole world shifted? Right then so and and I wasn't sure what the hell happened then But then when I got listening to Brene Brown afterwards, she says yes Well, you know when I had my my nervous breakdown my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening But I call it a nervous breakdown whatever that thing was is what I had that night But it came a week later Yeah. After that horse expo thing, and I think it's the fact that I actually opened up to people that let the you know, I yeah, I let a bit of a crack in the armor and let stuff out and then yeah, and then this happened. So yeah, so it's and it's been a bit of a work in progress to keep opening that that armor up since then. And I tell you what, mine's pretty mine's wired pretty tight shut, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, what what, what was it that got you started on all this?
2: Uh, so I started personal development in my late teens because I really, really struggled with the mental aspect of show jumping at a high level. I couldn't handle the pressure. I was really struggling with what people were saying about me or thinking about me on the sidelines. I had major fears when it came to um, doing jump-offs or riding young horses or unpredictable animals. And so I I went very hard down the self-help journey, our sort of self-help path. I did the mantras, the positive thinking, the visualization, the dream so big it scares you, sort of stuff. And after about two or three years of that, it felt more and more like I was lying to myself, that like the person I was pretending to be was very much a facade. And I've since learned about something called toxic positivity, Mm -hmm. where you deny all the bad stuff and you only focus on the good stuff. And the, being positive and, and whatnot is a very important part of dealing with trauma but not to the point where you deny what you've experienced because the negative stuff that comes up in our life is just our body trying to communicate that there's something that needs to be dealt with, that's all. And so if you say like, oh, I'm so happy and I'm brave and I'm powerful and I'm successful but there's an inner voice inside of you saying, no, you're not, this is not the reality You create kind of like an alter ego and and you don't actually deal with where your problems come from. And so then when that family friend came forward, I started learning about trauma and then I just got obsessed with it because I didn't realise that I'd had trauma in my life. I I thought my life was relatively good. Um, And then as I started to learn more about it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got all this stuff going on. And I thought, well, I want to deal with it because I was – experiencing profound anxiety 24 7 like it was really really bad I had very little self-worth or confidence I had major emotional triggering where my mood could go up and down 12 times in a day and I just felt like I, I had no control of my emotions and that you know comes with a lot of shame too because you speak to people in ways that you wouldn't normally speak to them uh, you handle situations in ways you wouldn't you know in really irrational manners um, even working with the horses, like there were times that I wasn't fair on them, where I would get frustrated because I couldn't deal with my own emotions. And so it became, you know, the thing is I learned more about trauma. I started to understand myself, which was, is one form of healing. You know, you start to, you know, say, oh, well, this I'm not on my own. There are other people out there dealing with the same things. And then when I learned the pattern of healing, then it completely changed everything. And since then, it's now, it's gotten to a stage where I feel like I've done so much work on myself, yeah. and now I want to share what I've learned with other people, because I know that a lot of other people have similar experiences, not maybe what they initially went through, but with the mood swings and the anxiety and the depression uh, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, there was something you said in there that maybe you want to ask you a question, and I got listening to the rest of your story, and I forget what it was. Um right. Yeah, the, the thing about the, you thought your childhood was pretty good. I thought, I thought that I had the perfect childhood. Yeah. You know, I grew up on a 1,200 acre farm and mum and dad were home every night and no one argued and, and whatever. But then at some point in time in my life, I got to, I got to kind of judging myself like I had the perfect childhood, but I'm as screwed up as everybody else. Why am I screwed up if I didn't have it you know if I had the perfect childhood and you yeah. know and then you, st- for me at least I don't know your experience, but for me you start to learn that it's not the big things
2: no, that make no, a big it,
1: deal it, it, Yeah, there's there's some little things that you may not receive that you should receive <laughs> excuse me yeah. and Those are the those are the big things. I mean some people have big traumas, but I, sometimes well, we'll get, we'll get in, Sorry, we'll get into more of that other stuff later on. But yeah, sometimes I think that people can get over big traumas and, and some people can't get over little traumas for different reasons, whether it happens during your, you know, uh, your, like the, the development of your brain, depending on how old you were when things happened.
2: Yeah. And I think, like, um, when I look at my experiences and what I've learned, if you look at the biology of what trauma is, then you can appreciate that something as small as a a few words that someone says to you Mm -hmm. or experience as a six-year-old getting lost in the supermarket for three minutes or a horse that bucks you off and you don't get hurt and you get back on but you don't deal with it, it, the brain can download it. And if you've had enough small experiences over your lifetime, it can turn into major trauma memories and major fears. And that you, was definitely the case with, for me, particularly with my riding as well.
1: Have you ever taken an ACE test? No. So it's adverse childhood experiences. So it's it's like a it's a trauma test that trauma yeah. therapists will have you take, and you like have you ever had this happen as a child or this happen as a child? And this I think there's I think there's ten of them that you can yeah. that you can um, check off, and you know I've listened to lots of books on. Trauma, and you know, I listen to audiobooks a lot, and um, oh, some of the stories that you hear are just horrific. Yeah. There's a there's a, a psychologist, named, he's a child psychologist, actually, I think he was named Dr. Bruce Perry. You ever heard of Dr. Bruce Perry?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. Wrote the boy he's who was like,
1: raised as a dog, and he yeah, wrote another book yeah. with Oprah called "What Happened to You." Yeah, very um, good. Oh my God, some of this like, he's the guy. I don't know if you were old enough to remember the Branch Davidian compound in in Waco, Texas
2: it was the the Dave, something to do with David
1: David Koresh was the guy's yeah, name. The and, children, yeah. Yeah, and they, you know they were in this compound and they got all these children out at one point in time. Um, and then they end up I think the FBI raided the whole thing and and there was a big old fight and lots of people died, but the children that they got out of there Dr. Bruce Perry was the one's that was the child psychologist brought in to deal with them when they first got out of there and they were, they were, you know they're almost pretty much and brainwashed to cer- mm-hmm. think certain ways, and yeah, it was very, very. Part of that was in the book, but yeah, ama- amazing books if you're interested in, um, yeah. in trauma. Yeah, um,
2: Peter A. Levine is also incredible. Yeah, um, Waking the Tiger. Yeah, Waking the yeah. Tiger. Um, yeah. Joda Dispenza. I love Joda Dispenza. I
1: love Dr. He's Joe. Working. You know, I did a I did a clinic in Washington State here two weeks ago, and there was a lady there watching and I got talking to her at the end of the clinic and she had been to a she said if we're talking about Dr. Joe Dispenza because Tyler and I went to a one day Greg Braden Joe Dispenza seminar in um, London a couple of years ago when we were over there but this lady said if you ever get a chance to go to one of the week-long Dr. Joe ones she said do it she said I had she had some sort of like autoimmune problem yeah forget what it was and it was ongoing like nothing could fix it and someone said that you know try this Dr. Joe thing, and she's got a scientific background. So she went for the healing, but she wasn't into the woo. Okay. Like, I don't want your woo stuff. I just want you to heal me. And she said for about four days, she kind of rejected what was going on. And it wasn't until she accepted what was going on. And then she had this miraculous recovery from this autoimmune disease. Well, not a complete recovery, but it was so much better. But anyway, a year later, she goes back to another one and she said, nothing happened. And I said, why is that? She said, because I went with expectations. And expectation um, chases that stuff away, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't present. She was ahead of herself. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, yeah, she said it was amazing. And I, I've had several people at clinics that I've asked about, Dr. Joe Dispenza. And, yeah, some people have, one lady in Australia, I think, like, had glaucoma or something or other and it cured that. And, like, it was, yeah. yeah, fascinating stuff.
2: Yeah, the science behind it and everything, yeah, it's just so interesting. And a lot of what I teach today is based off a large stuff, a large number of stuff I've learned from Joe and a huge amount from my own experimenting on myself because trauma is, like, it's a field that is getting more and more talked about, but it's not as evolved, I think, as it should be. Like, we're still – focusing on a lot of practices that were used in like the 1970s 1980s um so i hope that like in the next 10 years this is massive shift and first of all there's an awareness about it because you know if me and you didn't think we had trauma it means that there are so many people out there that have experienced stuff that they don't see as traumatic and so then they obviously don't go and get help to deal with it and then they continue to carry that for life
1: yeah yeah a lot of it's got to do with the you know the the culture we grew up in—I mean, I'm a bit older than you, so it's probably changed a bit. But you know, growing up in Australia, especially as a boy, like boys don't cry, boys yeah. don't show fear, yeah. boys don't show that, and so you end up. See, I didn't end up with anxiety; I ended up shut down, like yeah. with no emotions. You know what I mean? And and uh, I've always thought, you know, like Robin has quite a bit of anxiety, and I've always not necessarily judged Robin on her anxiety. But I used to think, oh, she's anxious, whatever. I realized that. Somewhere in there under all this stuff, I'm way more anxious than she is because yeah. shutdown comes on the other side of extreme anxiety where you can't deal with it, so you just blah, blah, make it go away. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm, I'm like, okay, you're less anxious than I am. I'm just yeah. – I've got it hidden so well. Yeah.
2: patience suppress it, yeah.
1: Yeah. So you, um, you, did, you did a lot of the personal development stuff and it was a lot of mantra-type stuff and things like that. And you found that you were kind of being incongruent because you were telling yourself stuff that you didn't actually believe. Is that kind of how it was?
2: Well, consciously, I was you know, saying all this stuff to me, but subconsciously, where those trauma memories existed, that was, you know, that my survival brain was saying, no, you can't do this, you can't be this person because it's not safe, Amanda. And so my identity, I would say, was very small, and my ego, which is your survival brain, was quite big. And so the ego stops you from really seeing yourself because it's trying to protect you. And, yeah, I just didn't have, I guess, enough knowledge of it, enough awareness um, to be able to, to work through it. And so this, yeah, the last few years has been extremely transformative because when you can, first of all, become aware that you've got things to go going on and then you've got then get the tools to work through it, then it makes it an easy process, but a lot of people don't have the tools
1: and they don't know that they've got stuff going on. Right. Yeah. And the, well, the thing, you know, the funny thing about like trauma and working through this stuff is like for me, it was okay. So I've, I've been shut down all my life and I, I didn't know I was shut down, but I've never really had access to power. You know what I mean? So I'd never been, and I've never really been in my own body very good, I've been in my head so much, which means I wasn't very athletic at school. And it's yeah. not because I'm not athletic, it's because I was in my head. And I have a yeah. theory I have a theory about people who are athletic. I think they're just wired a certain way to where they're in their body, they're not in the, they're not in the head, you know. Um, and so like, you know, I'd be, if you have a sports day and you've got two kids picked as captains and they picked the rest of the kids, I was always picked last, you know what I mean? So, yeah. you, so then you have this judgment about yourself about that yeah. sort of thing. And, you know, I just thought I was a weenie sort of thing. And then you, I, you finally get to a point, and I was about 50, yeah, I'm 55, now. I was about 50 before I actually realized what caused it in the first place. And it was something as an infant that I didn't even, you know, I don't yeah. consciously remember. And then you get to where you go, oh, so… It's not me. It's not a decision yeah. I made yeah. to be this way, and that takes a huge weight off your chest. But then <laughs> my next big aha uh-huh moment was actually on this podcast. I had Jane Pike on the podcast, and yeah. I was talking to her about my shutdown, and um, and she said, "But you, what do you have?" Because I was I was kind of judging it poorly. I wasn't judging me poorly anymore mm. because I I know where it came from. But I was talking about my shutdown. I was judging it poorly, and she said. But do you realize at the time that was protecting you? That was your best friend. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. holy cow. And so now instead, of, that's another weight off your chest. Like instead of right. viewing that thing yeah. as bad, I'm like, yeah. hey, that, that thing was pretty cool. And I'm, I'm a big fan of a fellow named Wayne Dyer who says when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that shutdown or, that, or the fact I had been shut down, it totally changed my perspective of it instead of thinking that bloody thing that's plagued me all my life it's like oh it was there for a reason and so it's yes yeah, it's, it's when you flip the switch like that it's pretty crazy
2: yeah and it's also like you know you look at bad behaviors of any time like narcissistic behaviors or judgment or a re, a rejection and whatnot those are all just survival mechanisms they are very unnatural states of being and they only come about because a person isn't, is experiencing stress which it threatens the survival of them or they've triggered an old trauma memory inside of them that they haven't dealt with and so anytime something comes up inside of me that's negative in any way I don't I no longer look at myself and say oh my gosh you're such an idiot Amanda you're so this you're so that I say what has been triggered inside of me if it's stress which is the opposite of anxiety or or that sort of side of it Uh, I say, okay, what information am I missing? Because usually stress comes about because you're overwhelmed, you've lost control, or you've experienced pain. And so if I experience stress, it's usually because I've run out of conscious tools and resources. And I find this quite a bit when working with horses, where you have a situation and you're asking them to do something and then you start to get frustrated. And there's this really cool saying which is frustration begins when knowledge ends. And that's when I pause and I say, okay, I'm getting frustrated. And instead of saying it's the horse's fault, I'm now able to self-reflect and say I'm missing something. I'm missing a piece of the puzzle and then I go away, I do my study, I come back. Um, So anytime, you know, you have a negative thought or you feel numb or depressed or angry or jealous or resentful, whatever, those are all survival behaviours and survival emotions and they only come about because of unprocessed trauma memories or because you're in a A a survival
1: state through stress yeah and i think you know i think all of your um personal development stuff leading up to that is probably very helpful for all this because in order to do what you just talked about doing you have to be self-aware you have to realize that you're frustrated instead of just being frustrated and being in the frustration without recognizing that you're frustrated you've got to you know, you gotta stop and go, what am I thinking right now? Have you ever read a book called Mind Hacking by Sir John Hargraves? One of my no. favorite books. But this guy is a, he's like a, let's say a computer geek type, type guy. And, uh, but he's got this whole book on hacking your mind. And a lot of it, a lot of the things he talks about might be termed in, in other places as like spiritual things. But yeah. he takes all the spiritual out of it. There's still spiritual practices, he just doesn't give them those names. And so he doesn't call meditation, meditation. He calls it concentration practice. Yeah. You know, he talks about the World Memory Championships where they, people go there and they memorize, you know, you show them something, they memorize stuff. He said, they're not really good with memory. They're really good at concentrating when they look at things like, and um, so he has a series of exercises for you to do. And one of the exercises, the first, very, very first exercise he has you do is play a game. He likes to play games. Yeah. He says, "So the, your game for the next twenty four hours is, whenever you think of it, just stop and think, what was my mind just thinking? There's no right or wrong. It doesn't. Yeah. You don't have to. You know, <laughs> let's say you're you're at work and then you're thinking about what you're going to do after work. And if you notice that you're thinking about what's supposed to be after work, you don't go, 'Oh, I'm I'm thinking the wrong thing.' It, it's just about recognizing what your mind's thinking about. Just checking in on yourself, and that's the like the." the first step is to just check in on yourself as many times as you can. And like in a day, you might get 10, you might get three because in the first hour you might get three and then you kind of forget about it. But it's, it's cool. He sets everything up as a, as a game. And it's the first thing is, is just what was my mind just thinking about? And then the next thing is, you get to where what was my mind thinking what was i thinking about what i was supposed to be thinking about but the first step is not that it's just checking in and just reminding yourself to just be a bit self aware
2: yeah and definitely the self help book in uh, books that i read and studied they are very influential in the work i do today and what i
1: think
2: like,
1: sorry i was going to say yeah. what sort of self help books you know there's a there's a million ways to go down that rabbit hole what did you what did you kind of focus on
2: Oh, I just read everything and anything. The magic of thinking big, or the power of thinking big, you know, all these different sort of um, uh, a massive range of, of work. It was what I found. Like, have you read The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari?
1: Yeah, by Stephen Covey. Uh, no, Robin
2: Sharma. No, no, no,
1: sorry, what's his uh Robin Sharma, sorry. Yeah, Robin Sharma. Robin yeah. used to, sorry, my wife used to be in human resources. Okay. Oh, yeah. And. We had this bookshelf that was all her weird human resources stuff. Yeah. Half of it was Stephen Covey, you know, like the yeah. what are the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or whatever. But half yeah, of it was Robin. Bad. Half of them was Robin Sharma books, and, and that's why yeah. I got those two confused right there. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, so I'd read, you know, a huge amount of self-help books at this stage, um, and I had read The Monk Who Sold Us Ferrari, and that book had been really successful. I think it sold over twelve million copies. And when I looked at it, the chapters and how it was written was pretty much a very similar pattern to every other South help book I had ever read, except it was told in a metaphoric sense, so it was easier to understand. Yeah. And yeah. so I realised that, like, you know, I had an experience where, where I was flying from LAX to Hawaii when I, I was in America taming Mustangs in 2015, and one of the trauma books I was reading talked about, um, they said, figure out an issue you've got at the moment and follow the subconscious limiting beliefs back to the root belief that you have. And it was one of the few books that kind of talked about those subconscious limiting beliefs, which kind of edged on trauma. And I went back through an issue I had, I, I started to unravel it, and I got to the origin and it was just like this, oh my gosh, moment. And I realized that, you know, self-help, self-help books are incredible but the biggest thing that they are missing is trauma. They don't talk about trauma. And trauma, the, all these things that I've wanted to become in life, my brain wasn't letting me go in that direction or visualize that because it thought that if I went there, it was I was gonna get hurt. Right. So I, I shut down my possibilities, I shut down you know who I was to protect myself, and I did all the positive thinking and I visualized and I created vision boards, but I always felt like there was a block that my brain wouldn't let me – like the, I had white walls or black walls around me. And that's why, you know, after three or four years in the South help world, I felt like I, I hadn't improved much in any regard. And then I started learning how to release trauma memory and my whole world completely opened up. And so the self-help books are incredible, but I think tied together with trauma work is, is the recipe for success. Because if you want, let's say, to compete at the Olympics – but you've had traumas of rejection and accidents and things that you haven't dealt with, then any time you start to move towards that direction, your, brain is gonna, your survival brain is going to switch back on and say, no, that's dangerous, you can't go that way, you need to get back inside the safe space. And so when I, yeah, I learn how to do all the trauma release stuff and with my goal being that I want to have the biggest identity possible because I want to know what I'm capable of or who I am without fear.
1: Boom, right there. I want to know who I am without fear. That is, yeah. that's, yeah, that's the life work right there. Hey, I was just thinking, how long have we known each other? We met at Equidays in, when they were filming, keeping up with the Kamanois, so when was that?
2: 2014.
1: 2014, okay, so we've known each other eight years. So, um, yeah, a lot of water under the bridge in eight years. You know, when I, when I met you guys at, Equidays in New Zealand in 2014, I was asked to judge this, I was there presenting, but I was asked to judge this something or other called the, I was pronouncing it Kaiman, and my, I forget what I was pronouncing it. I didn't even know what a Kaimanawa was, and so for you guys listening, the Kaimanawa is the the wild horse of New Zealand, uh, and they asked me to judge this Kaimanawa stallion challenge thing, and I'm like, what is it? And I go you know, I go over to the arena and, they, okay, they're going to bring these horses in and they're going to set up a little obstacle course or some sort of a thing and you're going to judge. I'm like, okay. And the first one comes in and it's pretty darn basic. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then the second one – and then, you know, they pull all the stuff down. The next one comes in, they set some stuff up and I judge that one. And I'm thinking, is this all New Zealand can do? Like, <laughs> these guys can't do much. And then after about the third one, while I was setting up maybe the one for the fourth one, I said, so – what what is a what is a and and why are they doing this thing? They said, oh well, these these were a sixty days. Di- was it, how long ago was it sixty days? Oh, I
2: don't a few months, I think. A Couple of months, yeah. you know,
1: two or three months ago, these were these horses were stallions in the wild. So they you know they gather the all the wild horses and they try to rehome the mares, but you, people think stallions are unrehomeable, and this whole thing is set up to show that they are. They've since been gilded, but. And I'm looking like, these were wild horses three months ago? And I'd already handed in some of my judges' sheets, and I had pretty average scores for what was going on. And I'm like, give me them things back. That was bloody amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I know. And my, like, my journey as a horse trainer in regards to the trauma work has improved vastly, thank goodness, uh, because I was very, very basic back then. But, yeah, it's a never-ending journey.
1: Yeah, so – so while I was judging that thing, there was a lot of cameras around and I didn't know, realize what the cameras were there for, but it turns out they were filming a reality show with you and your sister, Vicky and Kelly. And so Kelly's been on the podcast previously. And so what's interesting is I met you girls, no one knew who you were basically, except New Zealand horse people, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about what I've come to term accidentally famous. Um, you know, if you are a, if you, when you're a kid and you dream of being like a a rock star, or if you dream of being like the best rugby player in New Zealand or whatever, you know that you're going to be in the public eye. And so it's not a big surprise when you get there, but when you don't think you're going to have millions of people knowing who you are and what you do, and then you end up there I, it's it's hard because there is no owner's manual for acts Well, I don't think there's an owner's manual for being famous anyway. But being accidentally famous, there's definitely no owner's manual for. And I wanted to ask you a bit about how that's been because one of the things you said before about your show jumping was one of the reasons you couldn't compete well and stuff because you were worried what people think about you. Now, when you're show jumping, you've got maybe fifty people watching. You know, if it's a big show, there might be several hundred people watching you. But when you get on a reality show and you're on tv and how was tell me how that was for you
0: uh,
2: we kind of had we were fortunate in the sense that we were starting to become well known in the equestrian industry so we'd kind of been uh slowly uh, exposed to being in the public eye and then of course when the tv show has been filmed you're, there's only two people filming you, so you don't tend to see beyond that. You don't see all the people sitting behind the, cam, uh, behind the TVs at home. So it was easy in that sense, but I've, I do not have an issue with it now at all. But back in the day, I used to have a, a lot of anxiety and fears around what people thought of me. Mm. And I don't know, you know, with the, the fear responses, you've heard of fight, flight, freeze, right? Most certainly. Have you heard of for
1: of what? fawning. Of yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, fourth, fourth fear response. So it's basically conflict avoidance, behaviors, people-pleasing behaviors and yes. whatnot. Yes, I'm very I good at all of those. Uh, I'm, I'm I didn't very well-versed in those. <laughs> I didn't realize growing up that I was a major fawner. Right. So my biggest fears were fear of conflict, fear of what people thought of me, and fear of people not liking me. And so you think, okay, well, now you've got those mass fears and now you're in the public eye dealing with a, a wee bit of scrutiny because, of course, not everything we do is going to be received 100% by everybody. Everyone has their own opinions and beliefs. And so that was something I really struggled with. You know, there's been some incredible opportunities come about through the TV series. And then there's been, you know, things here or there that, you know, are just stuff we have to deal with. And at the time, I really struggled with that and in, in the same way if someone said something about me on the sidelines while I was competing I would really struggle with it now I, it doesn't affect me at all i you know it doesn't at all no not at all wow and and in the sense like i i have the ability to be like okay if someone is feeling that way something has been triggered inside of them yes. so it's nothing to do with me yeah. but sometimes it does have something to do with me maybe i didn't handle the situation well maybe i could have done something better so I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, it's not, you know, I'm not at fault, they're at fault. I'm saying, okay, I'm going to take this in. I'm going to internalize it and say, mm-hmm. okay, did I, was I right? Was I wrong? Do I need to change something? And if not, then I can say, okay, well, obviously they're not having a good day or I've triggered something inside of them. So I, I still take, try to take responsibility if I've stuffed up on my side. But most of the time it's because you've triggered something in somebody else. And so then the issue lies not with what is wrong with me, but what is going on
1: inside of them yeah yeah, I've found that you know I haven't been in the public eye quite like you guys have because you're in no, a country you you're, you're in a country that everybody knows who you are, <laughs> pretty much yeah, everybody yeah. in the country you live in um, but you know I'm probably more on social media i've got you know I'm relatively well known and you over the years i've had my detractors and looking back at some of the things i used to do i shit, i'd be i'd be detracting me now too but yeah. over the years <laughs> yeah. what i have learned is not everybody who's a detractor is full of shit. sometimes they're yeah. right and you got to go yeah. you got to yeah. figure out you, know, you get enough people make the same comment you kind of got to think hmm is it them or is it me
2: yeah and, and it's like letting down your ego enough to, to, to reflect on yeah, on what you've done. Yeah, it's hard. Yes.
1: But. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, so, you, you know, you guys did the TV show. Did you, did you guys have to do a lot of, like, interviews and stuff like that, you know, like on radio or whatever after the, the TV show?
2: Oh, bits All and pieces. To-, to be honest, I was quite worried at the time that we were going to lose our privacy. That was, like, something that I, I'm very, quite a private person in general. And actually, people were amazing. Like, we we were able to, like, go out and be recognised, but it wasn't overwhelming. We had a few um, radio and magazine um, sort of opportunities come up. We were on some television sort of short episodes. Um, but for the most part, we actually quite, like, we've managed to stay... Perfectly out of the limelight. So it's just a really nice balance
1: Um, which i'm very very thankful for yeah, well, what what's interesting about you guys like I said, I'm, I met you guys before You were Famous let's call you famous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I've told a lot of people this is like You're the same girl as you were then, you know, I, you know, it hasn't hasn't affected you in any way you've stayed very grounded and very centered about the whole thing and it can be quite easy to get all wrapped up in that stuff. You know what I mean?
2: I don't know if you can, well, maybe, maybe some people do, but I feel like if you work with horses, they are very, very humbling. So you start to think, oh, I'm doing so well. And then the next day you get bucked off or something goes wrong and you're like, oh, you know, time to check myself. So I think there are times, especially when you're young, you can probably get a bit cocky about things, but I just, you know, working because I've, got 20 odd horses and every given day i'll have some horses work amazing and then other horses just remind me to, to level back down um so, so I, I think it'd be quite hard to get to to up myself
1: yeah some some days the horses um make you think you know what you're doing and some days they, yeah, some days I know. they don't
2: and you get a bit of confidence. You're like, "Yeah, I'm doing things so great." And then the next time, next day, the horse will be like, "Actually, I, I can't remember anything we learnt yesterday." And I've decided I'm scared of the wind, you know. And then you just got to completely go back, reevaluate, figure out how you're going to address this and deal with it. Um, yeah. And we were lucky. We grew up quite, um, I guess, poor and not with that many opportunities. But our parents were fantastic and so supportive. So I feel like we've had to work for what we've got. And I think if we'd been handed it and it was easy, then maybe it would have been easy to get um, cocky about it. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of work and a lot of failure and a lot of disappointment that goes on behind the scenes. And I think hopefully that keeps us a bit more down to earth.
1: Yeah. You've probably experienced it with maybe some others who have been handed a lot of stuff in your equestrian sport and, there probably can be a little bit of that cockiness in there?
2: In the early years, yes, but I think everyone starts – they get to a stage where they get humbled down. I, you know what? Yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's funny. When we went – I think when we went to the World of Question Games in – I can't remember if it was 2018 or 10, one or the other, but I remember having a conversation with someone about the other competitors, not at the World of Question Games, totally separately from that. And I think it was yeah. someone from Australia, but it was something about they were – They were talking. They're wondering about how bitchy it is at that level, because at the lower level, it's really bitchy. It's got to get so much bitchy. I'm like, no, it's a total opposite. Yeah, everybody. Everybody has the utmost respect for each other because you know how hard it is to get here. It's it's kind of like when you if you're watching the TV, like watching the news or watching some show, and let's say the most famous singer in New Zealand, well, maybe see it on Instagram or something. But the most famous singer in New Zealand, he's hanging out having a barbecue with the captain of the, the the All Blacks or whatever you know yeah. and you think how cool is it those guys get to kind of hang out together but when you're at the upper level of anything you have the utmost respect for somebody else at the upper level of anything because you know you didn't just fall into that you know yeah. what i mean and you kind of have
2: yeah there's definitely like differences of personality opinions yeah. depending- you do have some not-so-nice characters at times, but, yeah, you, you do. I just don't, you know, you the show jumping has proven, and like every other discipline, that you can have all the money in the world and it and doesn't mean you'll succeed. You know, there has to be work. There has to be, you have to be clear about how you manage and how you deal with situations. There's got to be the sports psychology aspect. It all has to fit together as a puzzle. And if you neglect any of that, you could buy a horse of $2 million, but if you don't have all the rest of that to back it up, it doesn't equate to anything. So a lot of the people who are at high level, in order to have sustainable results, have done the work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. It also does help if you've got $2 million to buy a horse.
2: Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think if we, if we had the money, we wouldn't be where we are today. So I wouldn't, wouldn't change that for a second.
1: Right. Yeah, so you guys had quite the... I'm not going to say wild upbringing, but you know, you guys didn't yeah. have a didn't have a lot of money, a lot of a lot of financial resources, but you made do with what you you uh, had. And I, I think it might have been in um, Kelly's first book. I think like there were some stories in there about your childhood. Like, didn't you guys have like a house got washed away and all sorts of crazy things? No, not house
2: washed away, but we were living in like the first house we lived in. I think we we moved up to Whangarei. We lived in like a little shed that was converted. Then we lived in the horse truck. We lived in an old jail house. We've lived in a cow shed and a car shed. Um, We basically made do with the money that we had, which was very, very little. We bought ponies that cost between $50 and $1,000 and we learned how to produce them. My saddle that I won Pony of the Year in So when I was competing Grand Prix, I had a $16 bridle, a $300 saddle, a $50 jacket. You know, we just used what we had. We were very resourceful with what we had. Uh, And then nowadays things are a little bit different, but again, I'm still resourceful with how I deal with my money because I have big visions of what I want to do with my show jumping and my horsemanship and, you know, life in general. So, yeah, I'd say our lifestyle was feral. And very, very cool. Feral. <laughs> just like camping in the bush and riding ponies bareback in the creek and, you know, just so many feral fun adventures. It was so cool. But it wasn't yeah.
1: always easy. Yeah, you know, it's, it was you, – you mentioned something earlier on about your – back in the day, like when I first met you. stuff, like, oh, yeah, my horse, our horsemanship wasn't that good and, you know, I'm glad I've changed that or something or other. But the thing you guys – always had was maybe you didn't have the technique, but you had a connection with the horses. Yeah, yeah. And that goes a long way. Actually, the first time I met you guys, and what was the Palomino horse Vicky had? Spotlight. Spotlight, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I remember talking to someone about, like, she doesn't seem to have any technique, but she can do all this stuff. But like, it just, it just comes out of her, but it's, I don't see how she does it sort of thing. And I, that's a, one of the, the really cool things Thing about you guys is just how much connection you have you have with your horses, and you know I imagine as kids you spent most of your time horseback. Did you?
2: Yeah, a lot of time bareback, and a lot of time just adventuring around the farm, riding them and halting lead ropes. You know, so when you're sitting on horses like that, and you're sort of you you start to become quite attuned with them, versus just hopping on a horse in a saddle grind it for 20 minutes around and round in circles. So you learn what buttons need to be pushed, what different personalities, how they behave and, and sort of what they can do.
0: Want to support the Journey On podcast and get access to exclusive interviews? Become a Patreon member today. With Patreon, you can ask questions to upcoming guests and receive behind-the-scenes content. Check out the Patreon link in the description to browse membership options and subscription perks.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's the thing I really loved about you. Now you are about you're talking about your horsemanship. You said where you want to go with your show jumping and your horsemanship. Let's talk about that because you are a wild card for Road to the Horse next year, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I'm
2: hit next year. No, it's in six weeks,
1: five weeks. Oh, really? Weeks. Oh, so yeah. what, do you, you come over and compete in that and then the winner of that is actually in Road to the Horse? Is that how it works? Yeah. Really? It's yeah,
2: so the wild cup in Fort Worth, Kentucky. Uh, Fort oh, Kentucky. Worth, not in Kentucky. Worth, Texas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the, and then if you win that, you go to compete at the World Championships, which is in March 2023 in Kentucky.
1: Who else is in, already in Road to the Horse, do you know?
2: the main event i don't know they haven't announced it oh, yet oh they haven't
1: announced that yet okay so do you know who's in the the wild card thing with you
2: uh, i know i've seen them on social media but i don't know of Damn them. It.
1: yeah That's i don't know thing. i don't know who i don't know who's in it either so how have you done any specific preparation for that or just like what you do you know you, you're doing it all the time anyway
2: well i about 5 years ago i was at of the Horse when vicky was competing and i It was like the first time my eyes had been opened to this whole new world. I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to do this. And so I actually shook hands with the organiser at the time, and I said, I'm going to be competing here in the next five years. And so back then I knew my horsemanship was terrible compared to what it needed to be, but I had this vision of in five years this is where I need to be. So in the last few years I've been – I always break in my own young ones. I break in the odd client horse as well. But I've just been experimenting and changing the formula. So I'll go outside and work with the horse and I'll be like, that worked, but I know it could have been much smoother. And so I'll try something new and I'll be like, nope, that does not work. And I'll try something new and I'll be like, oh, I love that. And so I never, you know how some people they learn something and then they just, because that pattern works, it just stay they right. keep it the same. I'm like, it works, but I know it could be 10 times better. And so I, Strip it back down, and I start completely new. And then I get to a stage where I'm like, "Yeah, that works." And then I strip it down. And so, definitely, in the last year is where I've really seen my horsemanship come together. And a huge aspect of that has been actually a carryover from the trauma work I have done with humans.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, is, I'm 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 right there with you, sister. Don't worry.
2: Yeah, it is fascinating because there's just so many like you know the fights like freeze, form. Horses have the exact same behaviours.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when you look at the biology of the human, of oh, when they go into a survival response, it's the same with a horse. When you're working with a horse, there's very subtle changes in their nostrils, their eyes, and yep. their, their breathing, their height of their head, and I can feel the energy of them as well. And so you'll go in, you know, maybe to pat them on the neck, and suddenly five metres out, you just see them lift their head very slightly, and their gut stops moving, stops breathing and they've started to hold their breath, and I'll just pause and I'll retreat because I've, I've put them into a freeze response. But in the old days, I'd be like, oh, wow, they look so quiet, and I'd right, keep exactly. moving in. Yes. And then suddenly they'd explode or they'd leap away. And last year we I was doing a, a horse starting clinic, and a, a kid, uh, she, she was a 12-year-old, she bought her little pony that had a bolting problem, and so they were basically doing a restart. It had been very basically broken in but then given to this girl she had a couple of incidences where it bolted and she had quite a bad fall and so I I walked up to the horse I got 10 meters away and the horse was already going into a freeze and so for the first I think hour that we just played really lightly I just uh, approached and retreat every time I hit that freeze layer and within the hour I could mirror the side of the horse but I it, it was telling me it didn't want me any closer so we gave it a break we came back after lunch And I got to the stage where I could rub it all over, but I had to pause and retreat every time I hit that freeze layer. By day three, this little girl was trotting around on a bareback in a halter. It was perfect. It was awesome. But someone had pushed through those layers. And then, of course, you get a big explosion. And then they say the horse is bad or the horse is this or that. But the horse warned you 10 minutes earlier or 12 meters out. So being able to pick up those subtleties has been profound in my own horsemanship journey.
1: You know, what's crazy is along about the same time you've been doing it, discovering that and discovering how related it is to your own trauma work. I've been doing exactly the same thing. That's that's the secret sauce right there. Yeah. That right there. I had a – last year, the year before, I had a clinic and there was a a lady had a horse there that um, she said – oh before the clinic, she said, By the way, my horse hates men, like he's had some really bad experience. He was actually a charro horse, and I don't know if you've ever seen what they do with the charro horses over here, but it's pretty nasty, but um, it can be pretty nasty. And so I was aware of that. And so when I walked into the arena, he was on, the arena was, the gate was, there's a little man gate on halfway down the side of the arena, and this horse was on the other side of the arena when I walked in the gate. But like you said, from 10 meters, whatever it was, I started looking at him before I walked in the gate and when I yeah. walked in the gate and I took one step directly towards him, he kind of gave a little snort and he kind of looked to the side like I'm thinking of am yeah. leaving and I just stopped and stepped back and I waited till he looked relaxed and then I, and I eventually, it didn't take that long but I eventually got up to him and said hi to him and he kind of sniffs and says hi or whatever but that's not the crazy thing. The crazy thing was, after I got done there, I said, just just hang with him a bit. And I went down the other end of the arena to help somebody else. And when I got done with her, I started walking back down the arena. And this little horse that hates men pricks his ears and looks at me and walks, like drags his owner across the arena to come over and say hi. Because yeah. it's like, you saw all those little things. And, you know, a lot of, you know, I actually changed the name of my business last year. From yeah, I saw that. You know to attuned a horsemanship because for me it's all about that attunement that sense of being seen being heard feeling felt getting gotten stuff and because for me some of my trauma as a child was just from that yes yeah. was, was just being told to be obedient and not listen to those those little yeah. things and and so yeah it's crazy i had a horse i just came back flew back today from la i did a clinic on the weekend down there and there was a lady there had a horse that's pretty shut down He'd been like a Western pleasure horse or something, so he'd been turned into a bit of a zombie. And the other th- he's pretty shut down, and on the ground he kind of pushes into her, and you can't actually get him to move off and around you. And so I kind of went over and I was standing there, and, and uh, I reached up, and I do this quite a bit, I call it scratching for connection, but I just reached up and started to scratch him on the neck. But before I did, I looked at his head, where his ears were, where his eyes were, what his muzzle was doing and everything, and I just started to scratch him on the neck. And as I did, his eyes just turned slightly away from me, like, oh, what's this guy want? And I stopped. Yeah. And I said, now I'm gonna do it again. I did it five times, and the only thing I was doing was taking my hand away when he did anything. It's not about, I'm not yeah. shaping behavior at this point in time, it doesn't matter if his eyes come towards me or away from me. I did it four times, and the fifth time I reached up and I was scratching him, I had been scratching him right on the shoulder with a sort of area there. And as I reached up there she said, "Oh by the way he doesn't he never shows me his itchy spot and he doesn't really like being touched and as I started scratching the fifth time his little lip started to curl a bit and I stopped and when I scratched the sixth time I started scratching and his lip curled and his head went on the side and he was like, "Oh my god that feels so good like 10 seconds after she's told me this yeah. this horse does not have an itchy spot and I said to her, he has an itchy spot, but he's not communicating it to you because you're not listening. He, he doesn't want to talk to you if you don't want to listen. And all I yeah. did was tell him I was paying attention to little things. And what is so weird that you're on the other side of the world, because I didn't learn this from anybody. It's not like I read this in a book.
2: Yeah. So I'm really like, I'm jumping
1: up and I'm kind of excited here because it's like, it was just experimenting with stuff and learning about trauma and my own shit. And what's weird is you're on the other side of the world and you're figuring out exactly the same thing. I, I think that's, that's crazy.
2: Yeah. I had this um, – so I, I've got a Kaimanoa stallion this year. and I, you know, I've done the Kaimanoas in the, in the past, and I've never felt like I've really done injustice. And my approach has been really gentle. It's been really quiet. I've given them as much time as they need. And I had this thought this year where I was like, okay, I'm going to put myself in my horse's shoes. And imagine that, like, you know, I've, I've technically abducted this horse from its home, and I've put it in this yard, I've taken it from its family members, and, and so I looked at it like, okay, imagine I was abducted by this guy, and he sits me down in the, on, the, on the couch in his lounge and leaves, and then he comes back a moment later, and, I, and I'm saying with my body language, no, no, stop. And he keeps coming up to me, and he said, you're okay, and he's rubbing me, and he's like, you're fine, it's fine. I'm not going to be fine about that because he had li- neglected to listen way back there when I started to say please. And so now this year with the horses, you know, my, my method last year was so much better, but it still wasn't where it needed to be. This year I'd walk into the yard and the horse would just do this and that was its, its saying stop. And I'd be like, oh, sorry, my bad, and I'd hop back. And then I'd give it a moment, I'd come back in and I'd, this time I'd, I'd always get in a little bit closer and then it would be like, no, stop. And I'd be like, oh, my bad. And suddenly, you know, if you imagine I've been abducted and this guy's coming in and I'm saying stop and he's like, oh, sorry, and he leaves. Now you've got a, a sense of trust. But if he were to keep coming, even if he was lovely and he brought me right. food and he'd rub my shoulder, I'd just be so traumatized by it. And so the horse I have this year compared to any wild horse I've ever worked with is completely different. This horse is outward. And yeah. I'm
1: clapping. And, this is the uh, stuff right here. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you know, like I like to think I, I I did the best job I could with what I knew in the previous years, and this has taken a lot of learning and unlearning and trying to put myself in the horse's situation. But this year, this horse is like it. it like I feel like it loves me when it sees me in the paddock. It comes cantering up and it wants. Attention all the time, and it will look at me like this, and then it will side pass into me because it wants its neck scratched. And, and we're com- constantly communicating. Whereas in the past, because I didn't know they were talking to me, I was not listening. And so, then, and that's like a child, they can grow up in a home where everything's great, but they're not listened to. They these, try but... to speak up, and they're not listened to, and so they start to shut down their own voice. So that in itself this, this is why
1: I feel like the last year's where I've had that biggest transformation. yeah you guys at home can't see me, but I'm smiling like a Cheshire cat like this is <laughs> I'm, this is this is my life's work right now, like that's exactly yep. it. I think it's almost if you get that bit right, it almost doesn't matter what technique you use after that,
2: yeah no. because
1: they're like yeah, whatever, um, but the other thing is i th- i really think it doesn't matter what you know choose whoever's technique you want to use after that but when you go through that stuff you've just been talking about that level of awareness it changes how you would use a technique you, yeah. you're aware of those thresholds and you 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 won't have put them over you won't put them over thresholds. so and i, I really think the right technique with the wrong intention is not the same technique or the same same um, like the same energy. So tell me about this. Are you you're into doing stuff with uh, energy with your horses?
2: Uh, Kelly is very much go- gone down that path. I'm open minded to everything, but my method works so incredibly. And like I look at energy work, and I look at what I do, and I look at like whatever. It gets. It often gets the same. End result. It's a a release. It's a release of energy. Yeah. So the healing work and the fear release work I do is releasing the energy tied to our traumatic memories, because without emotion, a memory is just you just feel indifferent about it. It's the emotion that's the issue, not the actual memory itself. And so Kelly's energy work is also working to release emotion, and that's the same with prayer and meditation and whatever um so it's definitely something like i'm learning about it's my method just is so great and i love it and i think it's right for me so i think this will always be the core of what i do um but i'm yeah I, I want to be open-minded i don't ever want to say i know everything and it's perfect as it is because i know it can be better so yeah
1: yeah and i wasn't i wasn't so much referring to like say energy healing or anything like that but you mentioned earlier on when you were talking about working with the horses you said and i i feel them yeah. getting concerned that's what i'm yeah. talking about that sort of All energy right. like yeah, yeah. like like you know intuition type stuff not necessarily yeah. like like you're not doing reiki with them or anything but like you can feel when their energy changes you can feel yeah. when they start to be concerned
2: yeah
1: so we have a uh we now have a uh patreon group for this thing and so what we have from the Patreon group is they um, they get to ask questions of some of the yeah. of, of the guests. So we've got a, actually a couple of questions here for from the Patreon group for Amanda Wilson, and I think one of them had to do that. So Bonnie Clark from Scotland, this is all the way from Scotland, said, I wanted to ask Amanda Wilson about the energy work she uses when taming the wild horses and how they can be used with domestic horses. What does she actually do? How does she do it? How can we we'll learn how to do it? She has some brilliant videos on YouTube. Do you have brilliant videos on YouTube or is she thinking about Kelly? Kelly doesn't
2: have videos on okay, YouTube. Okay, so let's I...
1: let's continue on here. She has some <laughs> brilliant videos on YouTube and I can sometimes feel the energy through the screen just watching. I do use energy work with my mare, but I just watched how Amanda, watching with Amanda, it looks super powered. Is she talking about you?
2: I don't know if Kelly's had done videos
1: on it. No. have they? So she I mean, she says Amanda Wilson.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Do you have videos like that on YouTube?
2: Oh, maybe just working with, like, the stallions and stuff. So Kelly can feel it in her fingers, and she can feel, like, um, basic – so we call it buzzing you off. So when a horse is buzzing you off, they're telling you stop. They're communicating very highly that something's wrong. I can feel it in my body, but I wonder if a lot of it is a visual, sort of coming from a visual sense, like – when I was younger I, and I was learning about personal development, I read a lot of body language books. So I learned about, you know, how someone can sit with their arms closed and their shoulders hunched and it, and it means something. And so when I'm working with horses, every little thing means something. If they're leaning towards me, the energy is positive. When they're leaning away, the energy, I can, I can feel it in my body, but I'm possibly picking it up through my eyes. I'm not sure. But I can, I don't know how to explain this. You just get this sense inside of you, like a sixth sense where the horse, so like I'll be working with it, and right? I'll be sitting around the round out or, or going up to pat it. And it won't have barely moved. And I'll say, it's asked me to stop there and I'll hop back. And it will just be because its eye, just the very tight right. white of its eyes started to show. Yeah. Or a tiny muscle in its nostrils started to pinch. Or it's just started to take its weight to the outside. And they're millimetres, mm-hmm. yeah. they're tiny, minuscule changes, but it's an awareness I've picked up over time that, you know, you start to be able to see that, which then be, you can predict about, you know, what's about to happen. Did Kelly ever talk to you about the book called Left of Bang?
1: Yes, yes, she talked about Left of Bang, yeah.
2: In the podcast? Yeah,
1: and I've read it since, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah so when we're working with horses, we're, we're working with of of bang, bang, yeah. Yep. Whereas before the horse would buck me off, and yeah. I'd be like, "Where did that come yeah, from?" Where that Whereas from. now, when I'm on their back, I'll start to feel the energy come up, or you know, and it, it's usually because their head becomes elevated, their ears start to tighten. You know, there's so many ways that the horses communicate with us: ears, m- muscles, nostrils, height of their head, um, the way that their diaphragm is is working. So when we can become aware of that, then it's a lot easier to uh, in sort of guess or predict what's about
1: to happen. Right. And that's, I think, you know, in order to do that, you have to be present. You can't have yeah. an agenda. And yes. I think that's where a lot of people have struggled with horses is like they've got an agenda, they're, they're not present, they're going to catch their horse, but they're thinking about they're going to ride the horse. And when I get done, I've got to put dinner on for the kids. And, you know, there's all this stuff. And the, working with horses, like it seems like you and I are doing very similar stuff now, is it's almost like a spiritual practice because you are just in the moment you're not judging it you know they're not like he's not being bad or whatever it's like it's just communication and you've got to be like helping people at clinics uh, you know sometimes it's hard because they 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 miss a lot of things just because they can't be present around their their horses
2: I have this picture in the head, and this is an issue I used to have. They have this picture in the head of what it's supposed to look like or what they're supposed to finish the session on, right? So I'll go out with my horse and I'll be like, okay, my goal is to jump around this course of jumps. But then I'll start to trot and the horse will be dropping its shoulder or it will be spooking and I'll be like, never mind. We're not ready to go there. We're going to just stay here. And if this takes 20 minutes, then that takes 20 minutes because I know if I do the slow work today – then in the long run, I'm going to have really fast results. But if I fast track this and skip this, I'm going to have all these major issues later on. So uh, today I worked with my young stallion. I was like, okay, the goal, the dream, we'll, we'll call it a dream, right? It's something I have no control over. But the dream would be I want to put the source on the truck. I got to the truck and he said, oh, what the heck is this? And so I changed it and I said, I'm going to just do whatever he's ready for it. and getting rid of that expectation because I used to think, oh, I need to give my horse half an hour. It needs to be worked properly. It needs to get fit. Um, now I'm like, what does it need today? It, and it will tell me. I'll go out for a trip and it will spook violently sideways. And I'll be like, today, it needs to learn how to develop curiosity. And it needs to learn to face what it's afraid of. And so we're just going to go and walk through the trees and walk around the shed where things are spooky and just let it sniff and figure things out. And then maybe the next day, because it's done all that work, now we're good to go. Or maybe it needs something else. But if I ignore the spooking or I beat them up about it, the next day we're going to have the same issue and the next day we're going to have the same issue. So it's addressing what what the horse gives you is, is, is what you work with.
1: Right. And I think that's what, you know, people have a lot of, uh i think most horse problems are caused by people not being able to do that right there yeah. um, not being able to be in the moment with no agenda you can have a goal you can have a yeah. you know you,
2: you dream of the ultimate yeah day
1: you're day. like I'm, i would like to get to that but you staying present i call it i call this milk and eggs yeah <laughs> i uh yeah. I, i'll tell people at clinics like okay what grocery store do you shop at what's a grocery you got woolworths in new zealand
2: no countdown. I countdown. Think it's Woolworth. called
1: countdown. Well, countdown is well worse yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Okay. let and I'll if, if I was in New Zealand. I say okay. So you ever go to countdown for groceries? And they'd say yeah. And I say okay. You ever write a shopping list? And they say yeah. And I say you ever buy milk and eggs? And they go yeah. And I say so it's quite possible that you could have a shopping list, a piece of paper that says countdown at the top of it with an underline under it, and then under that it says milk and then it says eggs. And they go yeah, that's possible. And I said would you go out to your car and as you go to get in your car, you notice the front tire is totally flat and you think maybe I'll pump that up. Let me look at my list for today. Do I have tire pumping on my list? Oh no, I've got countdown milk and eggs. I'm going to count down milk and eggs. I said, you wouldn't do that, would you? And they go, no. And I said, people do it with horses. Like I'm going to do this today and the horse has got a flat tire. You know, there's some problem here and they go, Oh, but that's not on my list for today. The left to right flying lead change is on my list today. You know, and it's, and it's, it's, I I think that, and that's where people will think horses are difficult to train and it's a hard thing and you must be big and tough because horses do stupid things. Whereas really when you were talking about what you were talking about a second ago, I'm thinking that's the skill right there. The skill is a mental skill. This is not a physical game here. This is a mental skill being present, not having an agenda and being empathetic and aware and that's the that's the game
2: i had, I had this so I, my kaimanawa stallion before i left i think i'd caught him five times with the halter that was like a um, big deal for me and i think the day before i left or something i caught him in the paddock for the first time so he was really green i was away for a month during my trauma talks i've been home two weeks. And I've just been playing whatever he needed each day. I was like, okay. One day he just we were just working on touching his left shoulder. That was what he needed. Then today I thought, oh, I'm going to back him because he he felt like he was ready. His energy felt good, and I literally thought I would be lying across him, and that would be the extent of my session. And I lay across him, and his energy was so relaxed. And I thought, oh, he's letting, he's giving he's green lighting me. He's yeah, saying yeah. I can do. So I, slid, I ended up planking on him, he was still green-lighting me, so I sat on him, still green-lighting me, and I ended up walking around, turning, halting, rain-backing, and I say that's like, you know what I said before, if you do the slow work now, you get the fast results later, and if you fast uh, fast now, then you get slow results later, that's when you get your issues. So I've spent ages just doing the really slow, boring, whatever he needs, no agenda, And then today I got rewarded like insanely because I was like, oh my, you know, I had no expectation for him other than what he could give me. He gave me more than anything because we've just worked on the foundations. And as a rider who completely neglected the foundations for a lot of the work that I've done in my life, and then you end up having trouble down the track, you go to do a flying change on them and you have to force it because they don't even know how at a halt to move the shoulder across. So you're trying to go at a canter, move the shoulder across to get the change, and they're just like, I don't know what you mean, and so then you have to use more force. But if you get the halt so good where they can just go left and right on the ground, on their backs, then when you go to the canter, they're just like, yeah, I already know the basics of it. And that's where, like, this last little while is I've forgotten all about that out there, all the big grandiose stuff, and I'm like, what can I do for the foundations today? Because I know that when I get that sorted, that stuff will be so easy. Whereas I used to only be focused on that and I used to skip all of that.
1: Right. And that's that's when horse training is hard. Yeah. And you think horses are difficult and you must be tough or whatever. So I've got another question here for you from the Patreon people. And I hope this is the right Amanda Wilson because – she says amanda refers to vibrations or energy fields quite a bit i'm very curious about how she came about learning how to recognize (laughs) and what she's feeling and how she learned to work with energy what does it mean to restore an energy field is this is this you that's That's kelly Um, i thought both of these were when i read them i thought i think i don't think kelly's i don't think amanda's doing kelly stuff so sorry that's from elizabeth and uh sorry elizabeth we can't do that. But
2: Kelly, I, I will talk to Kelly and get her to start sharing a bit more because a lot of people are fascinated right. by that work. And Kelly's done work on my horses. I had a horse that I was asking the flying change quite messily. And when I would do it, he would anticipate it and just take off um, because it was very green and I was missing the foundations. And Kelly did some energy work on that horse. The next day, I went and asked for a flying change and it was perfect. Wow. So. Yeah, and I had that was like months and months and months of issues. Um, so the energy work is incredible, and it has produced some pretty cool results. Like the emotion so code stuff. stuff? Yeah, yeah. The emo- yeah so Kelly yeah, learned a wee bit through the emotion code.
1: Yeah. Um, so these questions were actually about asking things that actually Kelly is doing. So that's, that's not your skill. That's Kelly's skill. But you do have a skill that I'm aware of. You're very good with accents. Okay. <laughs> sometimes sometimes do you think you th- could you do six accents? if you could do six accents what would they be
2: uh all right so my name is amanda oh, no, i don't have to do them
1: yet i just want you to tell oh. me what they are <laughs> i know you
2: had to give them to you what, uh, what?
1: okay i could do african okay let's go south african yes
2: american
1: american okay australian australian okay
2: Irish or Scottish? I can't. Irish, Scottish,
1: I mean. yes, that's four. I need six. Uh, maybe Italian or
2: some European. Italian, something. okay. I don't know until they come
1: about And then, do you do a um, German? Like, do you do a German dressage instructor accent? I can
2: try. I don't
1: know. Okay, so you, like all my podcast questions, uh, guests, choose some questions for me to ask you, and I'm going to have you answer them each in a different <laughs> accent.
2: Okay. <laughs> I don't stick to accents. I change halfway through. But oh, Okay, but okay. Well, let's
1: let's try. We're going to start out with your South African accent, okay? Yeah. What is the most worthwhile thing you've put your time into? Something that you've done that's changed the course of your life?
2: All right. So I would say that that would be definitely the uh, form of work that I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've begun about seven years ago. Right. And, yeah, it's been truly influential on who I am as a person
1: and also the horse training that I do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even listen to any of that. I was just listening to your accent. That's, that's, like, that's like going to breakfast in America. You're sitting at a table with a bunch of Americans and they all order and when the waitress gets to you, you speak and they don't hear a word you said because they're just listening to the accent. And then in the, they've got to ask you to yeah. okay. That's your African accent. You said African again. Okay, how about your American accent? What have you changed in the I got the <laughs> giggles now? What have you changed in the past five years that's helped shape who you have become? American. Five years. What
2: wait, what was that question again? What is something I've changed? What about? is what I, have you I, changed
1: I, I, in the past five years that helped shape you who you have become?
2: Okay, so I would say that for me, it's been mainly focusing on my horsemanship. It was after I went to rode to the Horse, and I saw, you know, uh, Nick Dowers and Vicky and a lot of people training, and it opened up my eyes to how I want to work with horses. And so that has been, you know, going back to the foundations and figuring out what I was missing in order to move forward.
1: <laughs> I told you guys she's good at accents. <laughs> okay. So this one's Australian. What do you think is your true purpose in the world? <clears throat>
2: oh, I would say my I don't know I don't know if I'm going to be very good at Australian. Um, my name uh, Australian. Okay. Um, uh, I can't do it. I like. I'm from out. Uh, I'm from outback Australia. Um, I would say that my purpose is mainly to uh, help. Uh, teach people more about horses, I don't know. and also uh, tra- trauma work. I can't do Australian accent. I don't think I'd practise with that dingo. I'm from outback Australia, and yeah, I want to ding- change the, the way. The dingo
1: looks- ate my baby. Yeah, I want to
2: change the way we look at horsemanship. I can't do that one. I'll work on it.
1: Okay, but There's you your, pu- pu- sounds like your purpose is to help people with their horses and the trauma, and and help, yeah. and, and that's oof, okay. So that's my. That's my purpose. Get your own purpose. Um, so do you ever – you do know who Brene Brown is? Yep. Yeah. So one of Brene Brown's mm. books I was listening to, she was saying that she used to only help women and children. She wasn't interested in helping men yeah. and boys. And then all of a sudden she had this epiphany like, if we're doing nothing for men and boys, we're actually doing nothing for women and girls. Yeah. Because that's where all the shit comes from. Yeah. And I kind yeah, of yeah, feel yeah. the same with with – um the whole horse training thing if we're doing nothing for human's mental health we're doing nothing for the horse's mental health because it's it's the mental health and i'm not saying you know everybody's got mental health problems of some sort but it's it's the mindset of people that creates the horse problems you know, and a lot of that comes from our trauma and the way we view the world and that sort of stuff. So I'm really, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm all over you with that. Like, help the people, you it, know, helping the people help the horses. There's a
2: good quote saying, "All horse problems are people problems." Mm, yeah. You do fix the people, you <laughs> get rid of the horse problems. Yes.
1: So this one's going to be your Irish or your Scottish accent because you're not sure what it is. Yeah. Uh, in um, the past five years, what have you become better at saying no to?
2: Um. Ireland. All right. So in the last five years, something that I've really worked on is um, setting boundaries for myself and also, you know, saying no to, to people needing to take up my time if I feel like I'm going to spread myself too thin and also saying no to myself to, you know, before the conversation we had where we have an expectation and we want to achieve it and it's saying no, we need to go back and do what the horse needs. I used to have big goals and so I had to move fast. To get there and actually i ended up i don't I think i just went into america yeah, you just you just
1: immigrated from Ireland <laughs> to america right there <laughs> and then,
2: so yeah immigrated from Ireland, and now where am i now what's this
1: oh i can do english i forgot about that one. Oh well maybe okay. we'll, we'll probably skip the italian one um you know and i was that that question so these questions came from tim ferris's tribe of mentors book and that is a great question because a lot of times people don't realize they have people pleasing tendencies and a lot of people you ask them in the fa- last five years what have you become better at saying no to they kind of look at you like mm, i don't think i have but when you're on oh, this maybe. you know when you're on yeah. this journey you start to realize that you know people pleasing tendencies is a trauma response yeah mm. and,
2: and for me i couldn't say no Yes. And I wanted everyone to like me, so I do whatever they ask. Whereas now, the healthy boundaries of of what I need, I say, I would love to, but unfortunately, like someone will ring up and they'll say, "Uh, I need you to break in my horse. And I know that if I take on that horse, my other horses are going to not get the time they need. So I'll say, unfortunately, I can't, but these are some people I really admire and it would be worth contacting them. So you can set up yourself so you're not saying no. You're saying no, but here are some resources that you could look at, or here's a person who could help you, which makes it easier.
1: Yeah, and the big thing is you're not saying yes just because you don't want to disappoint them, which, you know, I think you and I I have done most of our lives. Yeah, it's
2: exhausting. Trying to keep people happy is exhausting. I don't mind now whether someone likes me or not. Mm. But in the past, that, like it was just this constant panic and if someone didn't like me i'd try harder yes and of course if they didn't like me no matter what i do it's not going to change their opinion so now i'm just like they don't have to like me i don't necessarily like everybody um or i'm not fond of everybody so it is just you know the realities of life
1: you know a few years ago about three years ago i think robin and i were watching american idol must have been during COVID because i'm never home to watch stuff like that but yeah. We were watching American Idol and there was this kid on there. He was, he was just amazing and kind of didn't know he was amazing sort of thing. And they get to the top ten where they do a concert in Hawaii and then they, the next day they've got to come in front of the judges one at a time to get, you know, whether you're in the top five or not. And this kid came in and, and Lionel Richie said to him, he said, to be a star you have to have equal amounts of uh, self-confidence and absolutely no confidence in yourself at all and you've got to keep it somewhere in the middle is
2: that so that you remain open-minded but
1: yes you can't just have no self-confidence because you won't get anywhere but you can't just be yeah. so confident that,
2: that you, you think you're
1: you the best go. thing since sliced bread you've got to yeah. you've got to have both yeah, and you've got to kind of keep yeah. it somewhere in the middle and not get too close to either of them and the whole when you set them indigo about now you don't say mind saying no to people but you don't say no to people like screw you you know because that's going all the way one way but not saying no to him is all the way the other way it's that thing in the middle it's like it's like brene brown one of my favorite brene brown quotes is don't shrink back don't puff up just hold your sacred space so shrinking back shrinking back would be i don't have time but i'll yeah i'll do it puff puffing up would be get lost i've got i don't have the time for you you know like and but then holding your sacred space is just no, you know. I'd love to help you, but no, I can't do that. Uh, and so you know what I mean. So you don't, you don't have that all timid sort of a thing. But you don't need to posture about yeah. it either. I, I love that that quote of Brené Brown. It's so yeah. appropriate to life, but it's so appropriate to horse training too. Okay, so you get to do your English accent now. Okay. Are you going to immigrate from England to America, or are you just going to stay in England this time? I don't, I
2: don't even know. I'm struggling with this, but okay, I've done it for so long. Uh,
1: what quality do you admire? Do you admire in a person?
2: What quality do I admire? Okay, um, England. I'm from England. No, that's Irish. If you,
1: you know what these are, hard All questions. Right, yeah, you- no, I've got, it. <laughs> I've got
2: it. Yeah. All right. No, yeah. So basically, like, I would say one of the most things I rarely admire in a person is the ability to be open-minded. To say, you know, I know this, but I know I can know more, and I just want to be in a place where I'm learning from everyone, doing the best I can, but never saying I know everything. Does that make sense?
1: Good. I was trying to figure out what part of England you were from. I couldn't quite <laughs> pick your accent. There, yeah, that you know, I um, I did an episode of the podcast where so you you know, I sent you twenty questions. You get to choose four to seven of them, whatever. I actually did an episode of the podcast where I answered all 20 questions. Wow. I was asked the guest the questions, and so I just did one episode on that. And my um, answer to what quality you admire in a person, I said it has changed over the years. What it used to be was physical bravery oh, because yeah. that's the thing I didn't have, and I judged wow. myself poorly for it and all that sort of stuff. But now I've come to realize that, you know, I did a, a – I've talked about this quite a bit in the podcast, so I don't want to go over it too much, but I went to a men's emotional resilience retreat a few years ago, three years ago or something, two years ago. And there was all sorts of men there from very feminine type men to very masculine type men. And when it all came down to it, even the big scary guys were just scared little boys. It was like, oh, now I know that somebody who's a big tough guy is actually a – a little scared guy inside the big tough guy thing so i kind of that wasn't a quality i admired anymore because i realized i'm not different to me but on that podcast i said the quality i admire now is people who are open and it's not oh, not necessarily open-minded but like you know the walls are down like you talk to them and they're they're genuine they kind of let you in instead of kind of holding you at a little bit of a a distance and that's something i aspire but yeah. that's something i aspire to because i still have those those walls up there but you meet people um you meet some people and they're just like so
2: closed no Boy, so open know,
1: yeah. like they're so like there's n- yeah. there's no walls up like there's a light shining out of these people like they're, they're
2: so beautiful eh? yes you can, you can feel there in those sort of people's energy so well yes it's such yes. beautiful yes. energy yes
1: and that that's that's kind of what i admire these days, and it's funny how it's, it's changed. And so your last uh, question, which is probably the question that everybody has chosen, every, which tells you the kind of people I have in the podcast, and you can do this in your – why don't you do a New Zealand accent for this one, okay? Okay, yeah. I uh, what is your relationship like with fear?
2: I have an extraordinary relationship with fear now. I, in the last four years since I started this journey, I've released over a 1,000 fears which sounds like a lot, but if you look at something like the fear of failure, attached to that is the fear of disappointing others, the fear of letting people down, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of making mistakes and so forth. And so since I learned how to release fears, I've just uh, stripped them away uh, over time to the point now where I couldn't say what fears I have because I've gotten rid of everything I know is a fear. But, you know, as you go through life, you'll be in situations where you'll trigger things that – that you didn't know were there. Um, But I I have a very healthy respect for things. So getting rid of the fear of heights doesn't mean I go walk off cliffs. I still know my boundaries. I don't go hop on rogue horses. I don't go put myself in bad relationships. But I don't have the emotional triggers attached to the old trauma memories that I haven't dealt with, which means that, like, you know, I used to have profound anxiety, used to have major mood swings and whatnot. And now my, my... Life is just very easy because i'm not having to be bombarded by getting angry or having anxiety or feeling hopeless or whatever um, so yeah very cool relationship with you
1: that's i I bet that's a uh, a level of freedom that's like palpable
2: oh it's insane it is. I especially like the fears around the fawning, fear of conflict, fear of what people think. Just getting rid of those fears were severely life-changing. But I've like the amount of fears I've just gotten rid of to do with horse riding. Fear of getting backed off, fear of losing control, fear of what people say about me, fear of jumping bigger fences, flipping my horse, doing whatever. Um, I was such a nervous rider, I'd get frustrated really easily if things went wrong, I couldn't handle the pressure, and now it's like I, fe- I don't feel like I'm having to force something, and I don't feel like I'm having to battle against myself, where back in the day it was a battle, it, it was a struggle, I, I was trying to push through so many fears at once, and I felt like I was never winning, whereas now I don't have the fears, so it's just easy. Which is yeah, yeah amazing. Like
1: I said, it's got to be a, a level of a level of awesome.
2: Yeah, so cool. It's so good. Um,
1: you mentioned at the start of the podcast that seven years ago or something, you were writing a book. What did you do with your book?
2: So uh, I've written three books um, about emotional trauma. So the first one is finished. First two are finished, and they I am setting up an online sort of trauma course called Propel Trauma, which. I've also got it on Facebook, but it's going to have um, those two books available as eBooks, I think. But the third one that I'm writing at the moment, which is all the science behind my own journey, that I'm I'm going to see if it's I'm going to send it to a publisher and see if it's of interest there. Mm. And if not, I'm going to self-publish it.
1: Self-publish it. Um, are you into polyvagal theory?
2: I briefly dabbled in it, but I don't know enough about it to have. It okay, that's that's a your
1: next rabbit hole because you're already doing it. Right. It's just it explains yeah. why the things that you're doing are working. Like I started doing the same the same threshold stuff that you're working with now, and I, it was work like stuff was happening off the charts at clinics, yeah. and I wasn't exactly sure why it was happening. But when I got into polyvagal th- and people had said, "Have you read anything about polyvagal theory?" I'm like, "No." it's a theory and I want to know the facts you know what I mean yeah um, but when I read about polyvagal theory I'll, I'll after the podcast I'll, I'll send you some links to some articles that are yeah, pretty okay, short but straight to the point but yeah polyvagal theory well, you know it's it's so be you said about fawn so there's fight flight fawn freeze but before there's flight yeah. there's friend and they you look yeah. for social engagement and if it's not available then you go into fight or flight and so when you communicate your awareness of those thresholds your awareness of oh that eye turned slightly there or that nostril just cringed up a little bit you're communicating how aware you are and it's it slows everything down but yeah yeah, I'll I'll send you some stuff on it but polyvagal theories I I when I got to understanding polyvagal theories like oh that's why all this stuff works oh Goodness me, yeah. So it was, it was it was, very cool. So if people want to know more about Amanda Wilson, uh, how did they find you? Um,
2: I'm on Facebook under Amanda Wilson as for my horse work, my horsemanship and my show jumping. And then I have a page called Propel Trauma uh, on Instagram as well. And that's sharing all my human trauma work and um, just moving into chemical stress and nutrition. And... I will be setting up a website. I've got a website for Propel Trauma coming shortly, and then at some stage I'm going to set up a website for my horsemanship. But that will probably be another year or two down the track, trying to fit everything in.
1: Sounds like you're a busy lady. So there you go, yeah. Propel, as in P-R-O-P-E-L? Yep. Yep, Propel Trauma? Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, so people can go there and find out more about this stuff. You know, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Amanda, because the stuff you're talking about, like from start to finish, but there's going to be people out there who are like, oh, I've felt that way. You know, it's the whole vulnerability thing. I felt that way but didn't realize that other people felt that way. And, and like when you were talking about the fear thing, like what the answer to your what's you know what's your relationship like with fear that was awesome because there'll be people like when you're talking about the things you no longer that no longer bother you those things bother a lot of people and knowing that there is a place on the other side of that is just you know that even if they don't get any help yet just having you say that and then realizing I've got that problem, and she had that problem, and she doesn't no longer have that problem. So I could live without yeah. that problem. It kind of gives people hope, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So,
2: no,
1: no. awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a uh, it's been a great chat. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to Road to the Horse to see you next year, but maybe I'll have to try. This
2: year, it's in six weeks.
1: I oh, know. I'm not going to that one. I'm going. To, you're going to win oh, that yeah, one.
2: No, no, no. Ah, you're going okay, to win yeah, that yeah, one. Okay. And you're
1: going to go to the one in March in, in Lexington, Kentucky okay. next year. Yeah. Wait,
2: I might see you there then. You might see me
1: there. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been a fun chat. Good seeing you again. Yeah,
2: thank you so much. It's such an honour. So, yeah, I really appreciate
1: it. And you guys at home, uh, thanks for joining us on the Journey On podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode.
0: Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.